Our Father, we thank you for your Lord's Day. We thank you for a day of worship, a day of rest. Father, a day of setting our minds on things above rather than the things of this earth. Lord, we pray that you would help us, that you would guide us, that you would be glorified in all that we say, do, and think this day. We ask that you would bless this class this morning, that it would edify, that it would be fruitful, that it would cause us to contemplate uh, good, right, true, beautiful things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're continuing on today in our two brief biographies, and definitely today's is going to be too brief. Um, as I studied, I noted um, a lot that I could have settled on, and I have no idea how I'm going to get through all the material that I have here. It's only about 30 pages. So I'm going to have to cherry pick. But today we're going to focus on a man named John Witherspoon. Who has heard of John Witherspoon? Mary has. Timothy has. Greg has. But a lot of you have. Mike has. Okay, a lot of you have, and some of you haven't. John Witherspoon was a pastor, first of all, and he was also a statesman, we would call him. He was a a delegate to the Continental Congress um, early on in American history. And he was very influential in, uh, in the uh, founding of the country. And it was said of John Witherspoon, I, I meant to, to look this up, who had said it and what the context was, but I think you'll understand. Someone said of John Witherspoon that Cousin America has eloped with a Presbyterian parson. And um, they think that was said of John Witherspoon. Not sure, but um, uh, when you spoke of a Presbyterian parson, John Witherspoon would have been the parson you are thinking of. And so um, some British man was reflecting on the fact that America, our cousin, has eloped with this Presbyterian pastor. Now, he was born February 5th, 1723 in Bythe, Northern Ayrshire, Scotland. He was a not notable contemporaries with him was Adam Smith, uh, David Hume, the philosopher, um, and they were Scottish men along with him. They were Scots, and so contemporaries of him. He was the son of a pastor himself, so uh, grew up in that context. They say his mother, Ann Walker, may have been a descendant of John Knox. Uh, unproven, but it, it, you would think that there, there would be some connection to John Knox when, um, when you consider John Witherspoon and his uh, integrity, I think I would call it. He, so he was educated at the, uh, at the University of Edinburgh, uh, which we would expect uh, being Scottish, and uh, when he was 20 years old, he received his doctorate of theology and was licensed to preach at his uh, home presbytery. So this is all in Scotland. He's not in America yet. He's in Scotland, 20 years old. He's a doctor, 
of theology, and he begins his pastorate in, in, in uh, Scotland. His ordination, it was said, um, went this way. John was chosen from four candidates for the church that he would go to, having thus passed what was known as the first trial. Right? So you would go and candidate at a church, and they would pick one of those candidates. And then the second trial was a two-day examination by presbytery. So we've condensed that down into a half day now, but we do it in committee, which is about four hours, and then on the floor of presbytery, it's probably another three or four hours. And so, I mean, if you put that together, it's a full day. But um, they had a two-day examination by presbytery during which members of the congregation, members of the congregation, could submit written complaints known as libels should they know of doctrinal unsoundness or moral turpitude in the candidate. And so um, the congregation would, would let the presbytery know, look, this guy may have been chosen as a candidate, but this is what I know of him and his character. And they were called libels of all things. <clears throat> um, his thesis was also questioned, and he was uh, called upon at that presbytery meeting to defend his thesis, which he would have written for the University of Edinburgh. And so that's, um, that was interesting to me, how they uh, went through that process. We certainly would entertain um, libels from congregations as a Candidates and Credentials Committee today. We would want to know and examine the character of a man, and we do examine the character of the men before they go into specific calls. He was ordained on April 11, 1745. He became minister at Baith Ayrshire and served there, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing any of these, these Scottish names right. You know, you got to swallow and spit at the same time. Play the <laughs> yeah, and play the bagpipes. Um, <clears throat> he served in that church from 1745 to 1758. So that's a 13-year pastorate for his, his first pastorate. That's uh, abnormal. They say today that the average first pastorate is two or three years, and most of those men leave the ministry. So, um, factor that in. I don't think it was probably any different then. After one year, <clears throat> there's conflict. And you won't believe the conflict that happens in his church. Has anybody heard of... Uh, let's see, that's not it. Has anybody heard of Bonnie Prince Charles? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you know anything about Scottish history and English history and French history, um, which was all intermingled at this time, um, listen to this. Once settled at Bife, the young pastor had a year to accustom himself to his new life before he suffered an unforeseen experience. Bonnie Prince Charles arrived from France in 1745. This led to elevated hopes in some quarters that once again a Stuart might rule Scotland. After his success at Prestonpall and an invasion and retreat from England, his army was about to clash once more early in 1746 with the British. In Bife, that's where 
where Witherspoon is, there was no lengthy pondering of relative roles of church and state, nor of hawks and doves. The congregation prayerfully decided, along with most lowlanders, to support England, okay? And the Duke of Cumberland against the rebelling Highlanders. So he's a lowlander, and the Highlanders want to, you know, want to get behind Bonnie Prince Charles and stick it to the Englanders. It raised money and sent off its young minister at the head of 150 militiamen to join the royal forces at Stirling. They were some 20 miles on their way when military officers in Glasgow, quickly assessing the untrained group, decided that His Majesty's army could win without it. The company was dismissed. But Witherspoon and his beetle, bearing a, a trusty sword still preserved and dearly prized by that gentleman's descendants, according to Collins, went on to watch the unexpected defeat of January 17th of the royal forces at Falkirk. Non-participants though they were, the beetle's conspicuous sword convicted them in the eyes of the young pretender's men who took them prisoner. For a week, the two were moved about with the rebels, so he's, he's now a prisoner of the English, right? Or he's, he's, a, he's a, not the English, he's a prisoner of, uh, of uh, Bonnie Prince Charles. And he, uh, so for a week or two, they were moved about with the rebels before being confined with 15 other loyalists in Castle Dune near Stirling. One of these, John Home, had been in the university with Witherspoon and was to be another of his dramatic moderate antagonists. We'll get there. Even sparing a prison did not unite them. Home joined an escape group while Witherspoon decided against it, wisely it seems, since one captive fell from the blanket rope to a severe injury and the next one fell to his death. But John and his beetle were released and returned to Bythe after less than a month's absence. Now, he's, that month in prison was not easy. Uh, he would be affected by that for the rest of his, his life. He would, you know, there were uh, certain things that went on in prisons that were unpleasant. And so, um, just think, think of that context. Here he is, a Scotsman, who sides with England... And then he's going to come to America, and he's going to side against England. <laughs> it's just all, it's all very interesting. Um, but that was after one year of his pastorate in Bythe. He's got to make this decision about what to do. And um, it would affect him the rest of his life. Yeah. B-E-A-D-L-E. Look it up. I think it's a, a, his troop, you know, something like that. So, I guess so. I think that's what I'm assuming. So anyway, that's that that happens early on. He's um, so 1723. That's 1745, 46. He's a 22, 23, 22, 23 year old man when all this goes down. He marries Elizabeth Montgomery. They had ten children, and only five lived to adulthood. Now, um, that wasn't the only conflict that John Witherspoon engaged in. There would be other larger conflicts as well. The next uh, that I want to mention is the conflict that he had within the Church of Scotland. Uh, 
The Church of Scotland during the time was, was divided between what were called the popularists and the moderates. Okay? Now, you wouldn't believe it, but the popularists were the conservatives, and the moderates were the liberals. Okay? And um, <clears throat> moderates, um, moderates were happy to, I mean, they were exactly what you would think of moderates today. Moderates were happy to um, focus on poetry, drama, literature as engaging vehicles of, of religious expression. Right? They, they passed lightly over the concept of sinful man and his relationship to God. They seized upon the freedom of every man to interpret the Bible for himself and um, dismayed many by caring more for graceful expressions in sermons than for content. Right? Graceful expressions. They wanted, they wanted a pulpiteer. They wanted somebody who was eloquent, somebody who could impress with their eloquence rather than the Word of God, content. The Apostle Paul, who was not impressive in speech, but came with the Word of God, right, in spirit and truth. And so the, the popularists uh, began fighting against the moderates and fighting against them because they were just ignoring the fundamental tenets of Christianity. They were ignoring the, the um, fundamental tenets, and then they were just not... They did not care about holiness. They did not care about the holiness of man, personal conduct. They didn't care about evangelism either. They just, you know, it was sort of um, a weak, weak sort of evangelism. And so uh, if they had any evangelism at all. And so Witherspoon would become a force of nature in this conservative movement. I mean, he, he led it. He was known as the leader of the conservatives um, the popularists, and he wrote a, a he wrote a, a sixty page pamphlet called Ecclesiastical Characteristics or the Arcana of Church Polity, being an humble attempt to open up the mystery of moderation. Right, one of those long titles, which is common of the time, but he, here he's gonna, and it's all sarcasm. It's all this diatribe that he writes against the moderates. And he is mocking the moderates relentlessly in this. Um, it becomes a hit. It becomes widely read, and he becomes widely known for this. this. Um, it, it was described as an acerbic ridicule of the moderates, much like Jonathan Swift's work that was being written around the same time. Right? It was unsigned, but everybody suspected it was Witherspoon as soon as it was published. Right? There was no hiding that. Here are some of the maxims that he wrote. He wrote 13 maxims about the moderates in this work. And it's just so great. Um, here's what he says, maxim one. All ecclesiastical persons of whatever rank, whether principals of colleges, professors of divinity, ministers, or even probationers, that's students who are, are trying to become pastors, that are suspected of heresy are to be esteemed men of great genius, vast learning, and uncommon worth, and are by all means to be supported and protected. That's maxim one. And then he goes on and describes how this is happening, right? 
Maxim two, when any man is charged with loose practices or tendencies to immorality, he is to be screened and protected as much as possible, especially if the faults laid to his charge be, as they are incomparably well termed in a sermon, preached by a hopeful youth that made some noise lately, good-humored vices, right? So even if they're called good-humored vices. Maxim three, it is a necessary part of the character of a moderate man never to speak of the confession of faith, but with a sneer, right? The Westminster Confession of Faith. To give sly hints that he does not thoroughly believe it and to make the word orthodoxy a term of contempt and reproach. (laughs) I mean... Folks, this is the PCA. I mean, this is what we came out of. This was the liberals and, and, and progressives and uh, the con- conservatives in the PCA. But no conservative PCA man would ever go to the lengths of ridiculing his opponents like this, which uh, may be a lesson to us. Um, another, a few more of these maxims. A good preacher must not only have all the above subsequent principles of moderating in him as the source of everything that is good, but must over and above have the following special marks and signs of a talent for preaching. One, his subjects must be confined to social duties. Two, he must, and I mean that's, that is I mean, I could spend the next four hours talking just about that statement because that is a double-edged sword there. But there's, there's a way in which he is right on. Two, yeah, right, social gospel we're talking about here, being focused on the social gospel and away from the scriptures. Two, he must recommend them only from rational considerations, viz. the beauty and comely proportions of virtue and its advantages in the present life without any regard to a future state of more extended self-interest, right? Keep it to your best life now and not the judgment is coming. Three, his authorities must be drawn from heathen writers, none or as few as possible from Scripture. Four, he must be very unacceptable to the common people. Oh, man. (laughs) Um, anyway, we could go on. There, there are like eight other maxims here. He, he goes at them. Um, and the moderates are enraged by this, right? Because it's mockery. And that goes against their sense of, what, of virtue. They would not find that mockery and sarcasm and intensity is a scriptural sort of language. Right? They, they don't find any model of that in the prophets. But it's all over the prophets, right? It's all over the scriptures. Now, whether or not he should have done it anonymously, I have questions about. I think he should have just, he should have signed it. He should have put his name on it, right? Um, Maxim 13, all moderate men are joined together are joined together in the strictest bond of union and do never fail to support and defend one another to the utmost, be the cause they are engaged in what it will. Faithful to one another, right? They will back one another up. The conservatives will, will fight one another, right? And get down into the 
um, details. Anyway, in 1756, so that's out there, he becomes the, the leader of this, this movement of, of popularists. In 1756, he's called to a church in Paisley. He goes uh, and serves there in the church. It's here that something else very interesting happens in his pastorate, and I wanted to, it's known as the Snodgrass um, case. And this is particularly interesting to me because uh, I'm a pastor, and he was a pastor. And you wouldn't believe the things that create um, difficulties for pastors. And here's one case in point. Uh, let's see, back the page. In those days on the Saturday evening before communion, there was a service to prepare members for the sacrament on the following day. So they'd have a Saturday service to prepare for communion on Sunday. As the congregation was leaving the church on a Saturday early in 1762, someone overheard and reported to the minister, reported to Witherspoon, that several irreverent youths were holding a mock communion service near the church. Young Jack Snodgrass, a lawyer and sheriff's clerk, used mockingly some of the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper with a solemn air as of a minister. Witherspoon, okay, so Witherspoon gets told that this has happened. And like any pastor, he starts doing a cost-benefit analysis. Do I, do I go after the children of the members of the church? Do we discipline the children of the church? Right? Or do I, do I go to the parents and just say, look, kids, you know, they, they, do, they do things like this. Knowing that if he goes after the children, it's going to be the next three years of his life. Right? It's going to be the next three years of his life. In fact, that's what it turns out to be. Witherspoon took the matter up with the session. Good move, right? He didn't act on his own. He took it to the session, which sentenced the reprobates, that's the author's word, to public rebuke before the congregation, plus whatever judgment Presbytery saw fit to add. Presbytery, perpetually ready to disagree with John Witherspoon, did not consider sacrilege proven and released the young men with a rebuke. This struck Witherspoon as monstrous. He appealed to General Assembly. He also had printed a sermon in which he had aired his view of the matter to the congregation. Though gently titled, Seasonable Advice to Young Persons, <laughs> the sermon had a a subtitle that intimated what was to come, on the sin of scoffing at things sacred. The work was offered for sale at bookstores throughout the country, and it nearly undid him. Friends who foresaw that it might, pers that it might, pers uh, friends who foresaw that it might persuaded him to, re uh, that sentence doesn't make sense to me. His friends persuaded him to withdraw the sermon. Um. And he consented to do it while the assembly was, in, was meeting, but they were again released and sold from 13 bookstores in various parts of the country. So many read the pamphlet, pamphlet and reacted to it in Paisley that the young men were not only ostracized, but even threatened and physically attacked. Right, so the young men fell under this 
Snodgrass put his legal knowledge to work. He sued Witherspoon for criminal libel and in June 1764 got a judgment of damages for 30 pounds. The court noted that the plaintiffs were guilty of improper conduct, thus justifying the sermon. But the publication naming names was illegal, unwarrantable, and injurious. However, the judgment was mitigated because the action had arisen from misplaced zeal rather than malice or injurious intent. On appeal, Witherspoon suffered the ill fortune of having not only the original judgment upheld, but the fine alarmingly increased from 30 to 150 pounds, half again his annual salary, plus full costs. Ashbel Green said that he had never heard of this affair, that's another biographer, in writing the Witherspoon biography, Green asked several sources in Scotland for an account of it. One Thomas Crichton replied that he had been a child in Witherspoon's congregation in 1762. He remembered hearing the affair discussed more than once when sentiment strongly favored Witherspoon's positive action against an unthinkable act. Collins finally brought the whole sequence of events together. He went to His Majesty's Register House in Edinburgh and diligently combed over archives where the reader must struggle through reams of legal, uh, legal stuff. Um, <clears throat> Green devoted much space to this episode and strongly defended Witherspoon, saying that if he had ignored such mockery of the sacrament, he would have been considered by the whole of the pious part of his charge as criminally and shamefully shrinking from his duty and would have irreparably injured his character, grieved his friends, and incurred the reproach even of his enemies. Further, he quotes a guide to the discipline of the Church of Scotland. Scandals should be, taken public, should be taken public notice of when they are of their own nature gross and infectious. And worldly prudence dictates the avoidance of personal troubles and inconvenience, but Christian prudence is of a different character. Green also notes that judges and lawyers tended to be moderates. Hence, the courts may have been prejudiced. In John's own party, the event may well have increased his reputation as an unflinching repressor of vice and advocate of evangelical truth and piety. And so, I mean, that, that's a good summary of things, right? He knew that if he did not discipline these children, that the, the, his congregation was going to, be, was going to, to think he lacked any kind of integrity. And he knew he had to do it, but look what it led to. It led to general assembly and presbyterian appeals and all these things, right? The session acted to discipline the children of the church, and the presbytery got upset about it, where those moderates existed. And the judges who were moderates put these fees on. But I don't think Witherspoon would have done anything different at the end of that episode because his integrity... Um, and the session's integrity and his church's integrity was still there. So interesting case there. Um, again, uh, who knows how that affected him the rest of his ministry and his life. I'm sure it did. Um, now, I have 15 minutes to get through his work as a patriot. So how did he get to America? His reputation preceded him. He was called to be the president of the College of New Jersey, which would become Princeton. Um, he turned them down when they first called. 1766, he wanted to remain in Paisley and be a pastor. 
He accepted, though, in 1768. He was, at the, he was uh, 45 years in age, called to be the president of the College of New Jersey. That college was, um, was seeing hard times, and they needed him to come and rescue it. The old side, new side debate was happening at the time, and uh, Witherspoon was seen as somebody who could bring the old side and new side together, old side being the uh, opponents of revival, new side being the proponents of, of revival, and the Edwards um, uh, strain of things. He... Uh, he would definitely become a leader of Presbyterian in America. And so think about, think about the, um, this line here of presidents. Remember when I was talking about Jonathan Edwards, we were talking about um, this as well, but um, the uh, Witherspoon is in that line of, of college presidents, you know, that were here to train ministers, and those schools were, were training ministers. Here's what, this is from Princeton University's website. Witherspoon began a series of highly success, successful trips throughout the colonies to preach, recruit students, and gather funds. While traveling through Virginia, he encouraged the Madisons of Mount, Pelli, Mount Pelier to enroll their son James, right, who later graduated with the class of 1771. Later, he persuaded his friend George Washington to give 50 gold guineas to the college. Um, Washington was a longtime advocate of the place. No college has turned out better scholars or more estimable characters than Nassau, he said in a letter to his adopted son, a member of the class of 1799. Witherspoon called the college's pastoral setting a campus, thereby introducing that word into the American vocabulary. So we have Witherspoon to thank for the word campus. Um, of America, Witherspoon would say, the sky in America appeared much further away than at home and was not continually falling in moisture. <laughs> um, now, so, so he's here in America, he's concerned about the church. He's there at the College of New Jersey in order to uh, recruit students who would be trained for the ministry. Right, so how does he get involved in the revolution? Um, <clears throat> well, Stolman in this book says, Americans, John Witherspoon found, were not a whit less disputatious than Scots. Right, so that disputatious um, characteristic that we know the Scots for is something that Americans have certainly owned um, through the ages, right? Edmund Morgan, a great, um, I think he was a Princeton historian, uh, wrote a lot about the Puritans, early America, but Edmund Morgan noted that no other country on earth did so large a portion of per proportion of persons have title to homes and land, right? So America, like no other place in the world at that time, the people had land and homes. Right? And that affected the character of the American people. Right? The psychological, he says, result was a shared protectiveness for their possessions. Right? And I, I mean, undoubtedly, we would say that that is a part of the American character. 
protecting your possessions, right? Um, <clears throat> his students at the college, 17, right, we're talking about around 1770s, early 1770s, his students at the college get caught up in the revolutionary fervor. And so as a college president, he's got to, he's, he's got to figure out where he falls on this and what encouragement or discouragement he should give to his students who are caught up in this fervor. On one occasion, as the Boston Tea Party was raging in 1773, the students took the college steward's winter supply of tea and burned it while they shouted and leapt around the bonfire. Okay? They also burned an effigy of Massachusetts Governor Hutchinson. So that's the student, the, these divinity students, these for, future pastors, and they're jumping around, they're burning the, the steward's winter supplies. Tea. This, I'm sure the steward was unhappy about all of this. It's one thing to, you know, for it to be theoretical and off in Boston, but when it comes to your own winter supply of tea, you might be upset. Um, Witherspoon was not shaken by the incident. In, in fact, he had a character of he let all of the, the, he let the students get away with all kinds of things if they weren't irreverent, right? They could, they could do pranks on one another. They could do these things. At one point, um, there was a bucket of water that was, was poured out of, of, of the building, and it hit him instead of the student it was supposed to fall on. And he immediately got mad, but he didn't punish any of them, right? So... He, he seemed to be level-headed, but um, in, that, in that circumstance, they denied commencement honors to the chief instigator. He would have been valedictorian. So he did punish them, right? But, but, um, but the man still graduated, so uh, he wasn't a, a dour sort of um, Scotsman that was constantly censorious. In July 1774, getting close to the Declaration, Somerset County, in which Princeton sat, formed its committee of correspondence. Witherspoon was a part of that committee, the purpose of which was to join with 11 other counties and select delegates for a proposed Congress which would bring together grievances and to decide upon action. Of course, that was the first Continental Congress. Um, that would, uh, and that would lead, meet later in 1774. Five delegates were chosen for that Congress, but Witherspoon was not chosen at this point for the Congress. Here, he shortly thereafter wrote Thoughts on American Liberty. Uh, he said, We are firmly determined never to submit to and do deliberately prefer war with all its horrors and even extermination itself to slavery riveted upon us and our posterity. That's what he would say in that. Eventually, he was elected to the Continental Congress in 1776, one month um, before he delivered and published a sermon. And this sermon, you have to look up and you have to read. Um, a sermon entitled, The Dominion of Providence Over the Passions of Men. Now, why did he deliver that sermon? Because, as Stolman writes, on Friday, May 17, 1776, businesses were closed and people thronged to churches to observe the public fast designated by Congress 
disdainfully called Congress Sunday by Tories. Congress asked people to pause and look soberly at the total change about to come into their lives. Hostilities had started a year ago, but only now did a consensus for independence seem imminent. On that day, from Maine to Georgia, ministers were confronting their congregations with the implications of a declaration of independence. This is May 1776. Congress says, get your people together and tell them that this is going to be really, really difficult. This is going to be very painful. And so um, that sermon is on Psalm 7610. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. And what I love about this sermon is, and, and in this sermon he does lay out his reasons for supporting independence from Great Britain. He, he lays them out, and the biggest one that he names is they're too far away. They're too far away. How in the world can they govern us when they're so far away? It's just a, a simple, practical, good argument, right? But before he gets there, he makes sure that he grounds everything he's doing in the Word of God, and before he gets there, he exhorts the congregation not to get caught up in political fervor and to remember their Lord to act as Christians and not merely as political beings. And, and he goes after them. I, I can imagine that, okay, this is on a Friday night that this is delivered. This is not a Sunday morning. I can imagine that he's got a congregation full of his own students who are probably divided between those who, want, who are loyalists and those who are Whigs, right? He's probably got the whole town there who's divided and not sure which way they should go. They say in America at the time that one-third were for breaking away from Great Britain, one-third were against it, and one-third were undecided, right? And so it, it, it was hotly debated at the time, and there was no consensus, right? Congress would, I won't say it, I won't say it, because I don't know whether that's true, but it's, it seems to me that Congress pushed a certain direction, right? But here's part of that sermon. I am sensible, my brethren, that the time and occasion of this psalm may seem to be in one respect ill-suited to the interesting circumstances of this country at present. It was composed after the victory was obtained, whereas we are now but putting on the harness and entering upon an important contest, the length of which is impossible to foresee and the issue of which it will perhaps be thought presumption to foretell. But as the truth with respect to God's moral government is the same and unchangeable, as the issue in the case of Sennacherib's invasion did but lead the prophet to acknowledge it, our duty and interest conspire in calling us upon us to improve it. And I have chosen to insist upon it on this day of solemn humiliation, as it will probably help us to a clear and explicit view of what should be the chief subject of our prayers and endeavors, as well as the great object of our hope and trust in our present situation. 
The truth then asserted in this text, which I propose to illustrate and improve, is that all the disorderly passions of men, whether exposing the innocent to private injury, or whether they are the arrows of divine judgment in public calamity, shall in the end be to the praise of God. Or to apply it more particularly to the present state of the American colonies and the plague of war, the ambition of mistaken princes, the cunning and cruelty of oppression and corrupt ministers, and even the inhumanity of brutal soldiers, however dreadful, shall finally promote the glory of God. And in the meantime, while the storm continues, his mercy and kindness shall appear in prescribing bounds to their rage and fury. Now, again, so much here um, that I would want to share with you, but I do, you should look up the sermon. Um, later, after he lays out how the, the, the wrath of man brings about the praise of God, right? The preeminent example being the crucifixion of Christ, right? But the hands of wicked men, you brought about your predetermined plan, right? So the wickedness of man does lead to the praise of God. And then before he gets to his reasons as to why and applies it specifically to the American Revolution, he says this, and this is very, very important. In the first place, I would take the opportunity on this occasion from this subject to press every hearer to a sincere concern for his own soul's salvation. There are times when the mind may be expected to be more awake to divine truth and the conscience more open to the arrows of conviction than at others. A season of public judgment is of this kind, as appears from what has already been said, that curiosity and attention at least are raised in some degree is plain from the unusual throng of this assembly. He's like, something's going on. Why are there so many of you here? Can you have a clearer view of the sinfulness of your nature than when the rod of the oppressor is lifted up and when you see men putting on the habit of the warrior and collecting on every hand the weapons of hostility and instruments of death? I do not blame your ardor in preparing for the resolute defense of your temporal rights, but consider, I beseech you, the truly important infinite importance of the salvation of your souls. Is it of much moment whether you and your children shall be rich or poor, at liberty or in bonds? Is it of much moment whether this beautiful country shall increase in fruitfulness from year to year, being cultivated by active industry and possessed by independent freemen? Or the scanty produce of the neglected fields shall be eaten up by hungry publicans while the timid owner trembles at the tax gatherer's approach? And is it of less moment, my brethren, whether you shall be the heirs of glory or the heirs of hell? Is your state on earth for a few fleeting years of so much moment? And is it of less moment what shall be your state through endless ages? Have you assembled together willingly to hear what shall be said on public affairs? and to join in imploring the blessing of God on the councils and arms of the united colonies? And can you be unconcerned what shall be come of you forever when all the monuments of human greatness shall be laid in ashes for the earth itself and all the works that are therein shall be burnt up? 
Wherefore, my beloved hearers, as the ministry of reconciliation is committed to me, I beseech you in the most earnest manner to attend to the things that belong to your peace before they are hid from your eyes. How soon and in what manner a seal shall be set upon the character and state of every person here present, it is impossible to know. For he who only can know does not think proper to reveal it. But you may rest assured that there is no time more suitable, and there is no, none so safe as that which is present, since it is wholly uncertain whether any other shall be yours. Those who shall fall first in battle have not many more warnings to receive. There are some few daring and hardened sinners who despise eternity itself and set their maker at defiance, but the far greater number by staving off their convictions to a more convenient season have been taken unprepared and thus eternally lost. I would therefore earnestly press the apostle's exhortation. We then as workers together with him beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted. In the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Suffer me to beseech you, or rather to give you warning, not to rest satisfied with a form of godliness denying the power thereof. There can be no true religion till there be a discovery of your lost state by nature and practice and an unfeigned acceptance of Christ Jesus as he is offered in the gospel. Unhappy they who either despise his mercy or are ashamed of his cross. Believe it, there is no salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. Unless you are united to him by a lively faith, not the resentment of a haughty monarch, but the sword of divine justice hangs over you and the fullness of divine vengeance shall speedily overtake you. I do not speak this only to the, he, to the heaven or to the heathen, daring profligates or groveling sensualists, but to every insensible, secure sinner, to all those who are decent and orderly in their civil deportment, who live in themselves and have their part and portion in this life, in fine, to all who are yet in a state of nature, for except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The fear of man may make you hide your profanity. Prudence and experience may make you abhor intemperance and riot. As you advance in life, one vice may supplant another and hold its place, but nothing less than the sovereign grace of God can produce a saving change of heart and temper or fit you for his immediate presence. I mean, he's going after these people, right? He's like, if you're here because you all have in common your, your distrust of a haughty monarch, psh, you're fools. You're, you are going to face judgment. You're going to stand before God. And there's only one way between, you know, to, to, to come into the presence of God without being cast out of it. And that's by faith in Jesus Christ. And so he lays this out. He lays this out. It would have been, do you, do you understand the temptations that John Witherspoon would have faced during this sermon? To give in to political things? to pivot and only give his reasons why this political movement was the right thing and we had God on our side and, 
and then start vilifying the government, which God says we shouldn't do? Do you understand the temptation? I mean, the temptations would have been through the roof. But instead, he takes the opportunity while he's got souls before him to say, if you die without Christ, you're going to hell. (laughs) And later he says, um, he says, I never talk about political things. Yeah, if your cause is just, you may look with confidence to the Lord and entreat him to plead it as his own. You are all my witnesses that this is the first time of my introducing any political subject into the pulpit. At this season, however, it is not only lawful but necessary, and I willingly embrace the opportunity of declaring my opinion without any hesitation that the cause of which America is now in arms is the cause of justice, of liberty, and of human nature. Right? So he's like, this is not my M.O., I'm not a belligerator, right? I have the ministry of reconciliation given to me. I have the message of Jesus Christ given to me. And yes, there are moments when we have to speak of political things, and this is the first time you've heard me do it. I mean, read the sermon. I don't disagree with his reasons for the independence, but I love that he's a pastor before he's... And, and remember, he's, he shortly after is... He spends the rest of his years in politics. And as the as the leader of Princeton and as a pastor, right? So, and he's vastly influential in the founding of America, right? The, he's on the Foreign Council. He, he's, uh, he's on the Economic Council. I mean, he is deeply involved in, uh, in much of what's going on. And yet, he took that opportunity to point them toward the Lord Jesus Christ and to make sure that his people were Christians first and, and patriots a distant second, right? I'm out of time. We've got to pray. I uh, wish we could spend more time on this, but um, we've restricted ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your servants in the past who have faithfully preached your word. We thank you for John Witherspoon and his example. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust in you, to believe every word that is written, and Lord, that we would seek the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, and live in the fear of you all of our days. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.